culture. 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 Equality, equity, and justice. Mm -hmm. Religion as culture. They should be at the table. Belonging. I would get passed over. Conflict. Community. Compromise. If I get to know you, I'm gonna love you. Celebrate differences. Cooperation. Culture. Mm -hmm. Culture and belonging. Welcome to the Culture and Belonging podcast from Troy University and the Office of Institutional Research, Planning, and Effectiveness. I'm Rich Lede. And I'm Wendy Broyles. Here at Troy University, we have a great diversity of backgrounds. We also have a great diversity of thought. I am particularly interested in conflict. What conflicts arise when cultures collide? But just as importantly, how do we compromise? And my interest is on the belonging side. In a diverse environment, how do we make sure everyone feels welcome? And how can we harness our differences to promote understanding and cooperation at Troy University and beyond? Our guest today is Joe McCall, a senior lecturer here at Troy University. Recently, Joe delivered a stirring and unorthodox prayer at a convocation here at Troy. In that invocation, Joe included references to all faiths. We wanted to ask Joe about that prayer and the larger role that religion plays in a culturally diverse environment. Joe McCall has served as a faculty advisor to the NAACP as well as the International Student Cultural Organization, known as ISCO. He won the Troy University Faculty Council's Excellence Award in 2008, has served on the Service Learning Task Force, as well as the Troy Common Reader Selection Committee. Joe, thank you so much for joining us on Culture and Belonging. And so tell us just a, a little brief, what is ISCO? Okay. Well, ISCO is many things to many different people. But as you said, the International Student Cultural Organization. And its purpose essentially is to serve as an umbrella organization that brings together our international student body and our domestic students and members of the staff and faculty and people in the community to get together to get to know each other. One of the things that's interesting about my own experience with uh, ISCO is that at the time that I was asked to become their faculty advisor, I was currently the faculty advisor for NAACP and also the Bass Fishing Club, uh, which is, uh, I guess, speaks to my uh, cultural diversity. <laughs> One of my big goals uh, with those two groups was to get uh, kids from NAACP to go to the Bass Fishing Club meetings and vice versa, and a couple of them did. Uh, and uh, one thing I found with ISCO is when the students get together, I can't remember a time that there was ever a conflict among our members and among the students who come to ISCO meetings where there was any conflict about faith traditions or religion. Uh, and, and, and I think a big part of that is that we put a big emphasis, or at least I did as the faculty advisor, right or wrong, uh, that ISCO was a place to come and share about your religion yeah. and share about your culture and share about your traditions and not a place to try to convince people that yours was right and another's was wrong. But ISCO has, has been a good place, I think, for people to learn about each other. And we've even done uh, evenings where, you know, different faith groups talked about their religious beliefs. My signature statement about ISCO, and I think it's true not just about ISCO, but about it can be true about Troy in general, is that if I get to know you, I'm going to love you. Yeah. Yeah, we all have an uncle that's a real pain in the butt, but we <laughs> know him and we, and, and, and we know his story and we love him. 
Yeah. And I think the same thing can be true. Now, I, I, I'm not naive enough to think that, that also that ISCO is a perfect environment. It isn't. There are conflicts that happen, but they're the conflicts of everyday life, and they're the conflicts of trying to build a community. So the name of the show is Culture and Belonging. And talking about this, this ISCO International Student Cultural <laughs> Organization, it sounds like they've got it figured out. Right. Um. Like they've got they've got both going on. They've got they've got culture. They're celebrating. They're talking about what is different and what to, you know, celebrating differences. But they're also coming with this idea, this this feeling of here. This is what I've got. This is what makes me who I am. This is what makes my people special. And it's not like mine's better. It's let's all talk about what makes us unique and special and great and very kumbaya. Right. Maybe we should try to define those terms, culture and belonging, a little bit. I think we've done a little work before we've gotten together to think about what these words mean. Rich does a lot of research in this area. One thing, and I always do this, I have this tendency to use a dictionary and look up, okay, what does culture mean? And I I try to find a simple little piece. And I found a piece from, from a Boston University website. And let me read it to you, and then I'll share with you where I went with it. Uh, They said, culture can be defined as all the ways of life, including arts, beliefs, and institutions of a population that are passed down from generation to generation. Culture has been called the way of, of life for an entire society. As such, it includes codes of manners, dress, language, religion, rituals, art. And then they went on to say that culture comes, and I, this is where I get, I'm a frustrated Latin scholar. I took four years of it in high school, and this is my one chance to, to do that. I, I like to look up the etymology of words. And I looked up the etymology of the word culture, and it comes from the Latin cultura, meaning to cultivate. But I like to think about culture as a garden that is first planted in our minds and psyches by our families and our neighborhoods, and later our schools and community. Hopefully, we all begin to learn about cultures, our own and others, close and far away. And teachers play an important and significant role in this as we get older. So what I'd like to share are two examples of culture that I've encountered, and part of it's my work with this go, but part of it also is as a student, I decided to get another grad degree here at Troy. I signed up and finished a master's in student affairs counseling. And I was taking a class with a professor and it was, a, it was a course in cultural diversity and counseling. And one of the things we were talking about was we were discussing the idea of a melting pot in a pluralistic society. And, of course, you know, there was a period of time about four years ago when uh, Muslim students uh, were very anxious about their future in the United States. They were anxious about whether they could come home and come back because travel restrictions were being placed. And so there was... A lot of anxiety among people, especially among our our Muslim students, uh, about what was going to happen in the next few years. And a young woman who was not a member of ISCO, she was a graduate student who, by the way, is is a Christian, came to us at ISCO and said, we're worried about our Muslim students and how they're feeling and and how they're, you know, if they're feeling accepted. And she said, I I just feel like we need to do something. Hmm. 
And she said, I, I just had the sense that, that ISCO could help. And so we partnered with her and brainstormed the idea and what the, the group of kids came up with, and this was motivated by students, was to put on what we called our melting potluck supper <laughs> for all of the Muslim families, yeah. uh, students, faculty, staff, anybody that was uh, of the Muslim tradition to come together with the ISCO group and anybody else that was interested. We had 195 people show up in the, in the ballroom uh, over at, at TC. And everybody brought food, so you know it was collective food. And then we sat people at tables and tried to mix people of different backgrounds. We had some fraternities that were there. We had SGA people that were there. We had ISCO kids who were there. We had faculty members who were there. And we had a lovely evening. And it made the news. It even made uh, downtown news in Montgomery. And it created this this glowing environment. And I remember sitting at that point I had about eight or nine Saudi students that were all women who had come to study with their husbands here in, in Troy. And I was really close with all of them, and they all felt so wonderful as the evening came to a close. And that's the positive side, and that's the, the side that, that Richard was talking about, of the, the, the things that, that we need to do at Troy. Sadly, just two days after that event, somebody wrote a nasty note and put it on a windshield of one of our Muslim students. And it, it just, you know, it took all the air out of, out of that experience. Yeah. But the optimist in me says, oh, no, 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 no. You know, what's important mm -hmm. is 195 people showed up and affirmed Troy's commitment to culture. Now I'm going to go back to, to that thing about culture and it being a garden. Right. Yeah. What we did that day when we did the melting pot like supper was we filled a room with hope mm. and with potential. You know what I hear in what you're saying is it's, it really comes down to some individual choices. Culture is a group phenomenon. It's something we, we might all have. We might yeah. be able to express individually, but really it becomes meaningful because it's a group. It's a collective, you know, and, and what I'm hearing in, in the definition of culture that you chose which I'm glad you did, you're talking about something that's created. You're mm -hmm. talking about something that has to be planted, something that has to be nurtured. Mm -hmm. You know, you see those few students that put threatening messages on a Muslim student's car, you know, after a very positive event, you take a whole lot of goodwill and a whole lot of work and you destroy it. Right. But Joe's also reminding us, or you can have the perspective of, Look what we did for 190 people. Yeah. Look at what 190 people, not two or three, one or two or three students, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, I also have to make the choice to look at it that way. I have to put those lenses on, right. you know. But I also would like to point out those few students that did that, the bad thing, yeah. the thing, the negative thing that tried to take away from what you did, that was planted in them. Yeah. Mm. You know, that was cultivated in them, that closed-minded approach, that I don't want to listen approach. But it gets deeper than that. It's I don't want you here. Mm. We have to make individual choices at the way we look at things, the way we use our own culture, our own cultural expressions. And are we using those as a way to intimidate or are we looking to build a bridge? Right. Joe, you led a prayer at Convocation recently here at Troy. And... It was a little different. Will you tell us a little bit about that and really why it was important to you to include all faiths? 
I think that what was important about my prayer was that it was inclusive. Yeah. I was nervous giving this this prayer because I thought there are going to be people who may not like this. Yeah. Now, again, what was so lovely was I had emails in my email box. I had people coming up to me saying, thank you, because I said things like this. I bow to the one who signs the cross. I bow to the one who sits with the Buddha. I bow to the one who wails at the wall. I bow to the Om flowing in the Ganges. I bow to the one who faces Mecca, whose forehead touches holy ground. I bow to the dervishes whirling in mystical wind. I got that from a, a, a Benedictine nun. Yeah. Now it doesn't mean that I, you know, that I convert to each of those religions. What it means is I acknowledge it as a part of our culture here. Mm-hmm. But what was most remarkable, I had people come up to me afterwards crying. And a number of people came up and said, that's the first time I've felt welcome mm-hmm. during a prayer because it addressed you know, my spiritual beliefs. And, and I don't say that to denigrate or, or say anything negative about other people's uh, prayers because I've, I've listened and I've, I've gained insights from some of those prayers. But all too often, I think, we have a tendency to focus more on an evangelical or fundamentalist Christian prayer. Mm-hmm. And I think that it would be good if, if more of our Muslim students could offer prayers, if more of our uh, Hindu students could offer prayers. I think that it would make us all richer. And, and the chancellor, bless his heart, uh, I, I love the chancellor. After I gave the convocation, uh, the invocation at the convocation, I went up to him and I said, well, I know that was a little bit weird. And he looked at me and he said, well, I've come to expect that from you, Joe. <laughs> you know, you asked me to talk about the convocation and, and what motivated it. And one of the things that I talked about in that, in that invocation was how Dr. Hawkins talks about all the different languages that are spoken on mm-hmm. our campus mm-hmm. every day. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, well, how many different prayers go up from our campus every day? Yeah. And either prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of gratitude, mm-hmm. prayers of fear or deliverance from fear, prayers of despair. And I thought, if we could just hear all of those happening around us, yeah, how much would that help us to come together? I firmly believe that, and, and if you read what I wrote in the invocation, a lot of it has to do with vulnerability and limitations and fear. And it doesn't have to do with excitement and perfection. It has to do with what are the things that, what are our limitations? Mm-hmm. What are our weaknesses? And if we share those, I think that is a spiritual moment. I think that's an important part of what religion can be uh, if, we, if we open up and listen. I'd like to circle back to this analogy of, of culture as a garden. Okay. I've, I've had all these images in my head while we've been talking about how, you know, different people experience a garden in different ways, right? There's, there's someone who has to come and dig up the ground and make sure the dirt is, is good and fertile. That's, that's the messy part, right? Somebody right. has to plant whatever plants they're going to be. Somebody will make sure the, the plants are pruned and that there are no pests in the garden. And, and pests come because mm-hmm. conflict is part of life, right? right? So we still have to fight the pests and we have to protect our plants. And 
it, depending on what kind of garden it is, there may be flowers that, that bloom and fade. There may be um, fruits or vegetables that grow and need to be plucked and, and enjoyed, right? And then there are people who will just walk by and never even pay attention to the garden. There, there are flower beds on campus that people never stop and, right. and look at the flowers or care. But then there are other people who love that space and will go and sit and just enjoy that space. And so where my thinking is in this analogy of, of culture as a garden is it, it doesn't matter like who who dug the, the dirt. It, it doesn't matter who's enjoying the flowers. The garden is there to be enjoyed. Right. And and. When we, when we sit and enjoy the garden, there's some kind of completion that happens because of the garden, right? But if we just keep walking by right. and don't spend any time, then that's where we're not listening. We're not interested in hearing about these other cultures. We're not interested in learning. And you can't belong if you don't participate. Right. Yeah, I'm a big believer in telling stories. And I think that stories are often the shortest distance between two points with different faiths. And, and I'll share one of the stories I, I love to share when I talk about Buddhism. It's a great little story about a, a guy being chased by a hungry, angry tiger. Oh, no. And he's, he's, he's running, and the tiger's bearing down on him. And then right as the tiger's about to grab him, he comes to the edge of this cliff, and he looks over the cliff, 200 feet, dead drop. And mm. by the way, this will tie back to your garden. Really nice. <laughs> Yeah, he looks and it's like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. Then he sees a vine growing over the edge of the cliff and he grabs hold of the vine and he starts working his way down the vine. He gets about 100 feet down, runs out of vine. So uh -oh. now he's hanging in midair on the edge of a cliff, rocks below, and he looks up and the tiger starts to chew on the vine. Oh, no. He looks right in front of him and growing out of the edge of the wall is a perfect strawberry. He plucks the strawberry, puts it in his mouth, and he says, yum, what a good strawberry. Now, to me, that, and again, not as, a, as an advanced scholar of Buddhism, but that explains the Buddhist mind and my understanding. And when I tell that story after I've gone over, yeah, the, the, the different histories and backgrounds of, of the establishment of Buddhism, I think my students get that. And that's the part about the garden mm -hmm. is who knows what's going to attract people the most to a garden. We learn the most about our spirit, our psyche, our soul, I think, from looking at other people or our own struggles mm -hmm. in times of real turmoil and, and heartache. One of the things that defined my religious and spiritual path was when I was 11 years old. My granddad, who was a very devout Christian, had actually gone on crusade with Billy Graham's organization to India in 1960. He befriended a young Indian student who came back to Auburn and surprised my grandfather. And, and this was before Auburn had integrated, and he was a very dark-skinned Indian. But back then, if you were a person of color from a foreign country, you could attend to schools like Auburn. And so he enrolled. He surprised my granddad by showing up. My granddad invited everybody to come to Auburn. But this young man befriended me as an 11-year-old. Mm -hmm. 
and he was kind to me. And, and, and I, always, I share this story when I, I talk about civil rights with my students in my U.S. classes as I'm trying to explain the civil rights movement because this was right as the sit-ins had just finished and then in 61 in the summer uh, were the Freedom Riders. And it was a crazy time. Yeah. And this guy shows up. And he befriended me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I said I have a long line of Southern Baptist and Methodist preachers in my family. George Matheson, John Ed Matheson are, are my cousins. Uh, they were my dad's uh, first cousins. So my cousin George was preaching at a teen revival in Notasalga. Yeah. And, you know, he said, you guys want to come? We're like, sure, you know, we'll come. My brother and I were just kids. And... Um, so he said, can we bring our friend George with us? And he said, sure, bring anybody you want. Well, he didn't realize who we were talking about. It was this kid from India. Yeah. We walked into the church and turmoil broke out. Mm. Yeah, people were talking. You could feel the, the negative energy. And, of course, this was during a period of time when there were a lot of civil rights activists who were challenging white segregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I know it was a, a difficult time for African-Americans. So my granddad went to the front of the church, and he said, now, y'all need to know that this is George, and he's from India. He said, George, he said, come on up here and speak a few words in Indian to the people. And my friend walked up there, and as an 11-year-old, my heart broke Mm. because this was a kind, gentle, by the way, Christian young man. And... He was forced to do this, to experience this shame. Well, I thought, that's bad enough. He sits back down. We get halfway through the service, and the biggest cop I've ever seen came in, whapped the back of the pew with his, with his stick, and he said, come on, get up and get out of here. I thought we'd been arrested oh, no. for taking a black guy to a white church. It wasn't until a few years later my grandfather said, no, members of the congregation had gone home to get guns and ropes. And the policeman was a friend of mine because my granddad grew up in Notasalga. Mm-hmm. And he said he came to, he took us home because he was trying to protect us. Wow. Now, that story of agony has been part of my struggle with Christianity, to be mm-hmm. honest, because I saw too much of that when I was young. However, I also am reminded that there were members of that congregation who didn't react that way. The police chief came to protect us. But what I learned from it was the struggle that happens when people are afraid. Mm. And while that may have challenged my perceptions uh, uh, for for many, many, many years about Christianity, it also informed my perceptions about what needs to be done to have a healthy community. And as a faculty member, what I try to do, I don't always succeed at because, boy, ask my wife. She'll let you know that I'm not the most perfect person on the planet. <laughs> but what I do try to do is operate from a standpoint of love when it comes to all of our different students from mm-hmm. all the different backgrounds. And I've never shared any of these stories about religion or about politics and religion or politics and race where I don't say and, and remind people that, yeah, don't lump everybody together. Yeah, lumping and splitting. Yeah, we can't do that. Right. Because there's more at work here. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an important thing to remember. It 
Yeah, my, my office for a couple of years was in MacArthur. I, I was heartbroken when they tore that building down. I'm probably the only person who, uh, <laughs> who misses it. But for a period of time when my little boy Finn was just a baby, I was in that office on the second floor of MacArthur. Right across the hall was the Muslim prayer oh, the room. the prayer room. Mm. And what I remember about that prayer room was hearing the students uh, show up there and listening to them, you know, it, it, the muffled yeah. voices of their prayers. Yeah. But what I also remember was they knew Finn came with me to my office. It was a big office, and there was hardly anybody in that building on the second floor. So I even had a little playpen where I'd bring him when I had office hours, and he'd nap while I met with my students. But those Muslim students invited him to use that room any time I was there, and it was covered in rugs. Yeah. So it was a perfect place for a toddler to crawl around. Yeah. And I thought, isn't this wonderful, you know? <laughs> and most students didn't even know we had a Muslim prayer room. In fact, they probably didn't talk about it because there, there might have been conflict. But it became a part of what, you know, defined my little film. Mm. And, and, yeah, I have to believe that, that one of the best things I'm doing as a parent right now is exposing my six-year-old to the cultures that exist on this campus. And he has friends, yeah, college students, from every religious background, from many different countries, countries that we're in conflict with now or countries that we're closely allied with. Mm -hmm. And I have to believe it's going to make him a better citizen of the world yeah, and not just a citizen of the United States. So something that, that came up with Dr. Rosser Mims and with you is this concept of humility mm -hmm. and just love. So how do, how do those two terms, love and humility, relate to each other or are they the same thing or do we even want to go here? Rich, you might not want to. No, no, this is great. <laughs> I'll, I'll grab that this and continue great. with our garden metaphor. Part of what helped me to survive 39 years as a recovering addict and alcoholic mm -hmm. is the word humble. Because there's a, a part of, of the recovery programs that says humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. And so I've thought a lot about that word humble. And, of course, it comes from the Latin root, again, can't help it, humus, earth. Yeah, that you're connected to the earth, that you're grounded. So to me, if I'm humble, I'm not being grandiose. I'm not being, I'm not groveling. I'm solid. Mm -hmm. In fact, my sister uh, reminds me of her. She's died three years ago. There's a brick out on the thing that actually had, even though she's probably the most, one of the most beautiful Christian people I've known, mm -hmm. but she was also deeply influenced and informed by Buddhism, especially right. a guy named Ram Das. And we put a quote on her brick because I wanted to buy her brick and it says, Sherry McCall, be here now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but she was one of those humble people and yeah. a simple person. And she taught me a lot about humility, of living a simple life. She was an artist. But one of the things she did was she, she worked in stone. She did mosaics, a lot of religious mosaics. In fact, if she could have picked her, her path, it would have been to spend 10 years at a convent or monastery somewhere doing some great piece of, of mosaics. But she carved little hearts out of granite. It took her about an hour to make each heart. And she had to shape them with a, with a wet saw and then hand sand them and, and get them right. And she started passing them out to people. 
to me, that's a humble example because she gave them out not to people who were big shots. She would give these hearts out to people randomly. Mm. And when she died, I, I, was, I had written her obituary and put the pamphlet together for her funeral. And I, um, I took it to the printer to be printed. And it was down in Santa Rosa Beach near Destin, in between Destin and, and Panama City. Mm -hmm. And when I walked in, I asked them, I said, can you help me print these? For I, I need 150 copies and I need it quickly. And she looked at it and she started to cry. And she said, your sister gave me one of her hearts. She wow. gave out, as best we can tell, about four or 500 of these hearts in her lifetime. Oh, wow. And just randomly gave them to people and said, here, here's a little bit of love. That's a labor of love. Yeah. That's beautiful. But it's, it's humble. It, it, yeah. It, it wasn't. She wasn't making a big deal out of it. She wasn't selling them. Yeah. Right. Oh, no, never. Yeah. Never. And I only have three left, and I, I'm guarding those cautiously so that I can give them to people that matter. But to me, humility is that part that grounds us and makes sure that we don't think we've got all the answers. Right. You know, one of the things I share with my history, my students in my history class is if somebody comes and tells you they have the answer— the definitive truth about something, They're run in the other wrong. direction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the people that I admire, the people who, who get down in the dirt like mm -hmm. the gardener mm -hmm. and do all that digging and come up with some sense of, of understanding. You know, we can all learn from each other uh, if we listen. Well, Joe, thank you so yeah. much. Thank you, Joe. For spending this time with us. Well, I, and thank you both. And, and I mean, I've, I've known Rich longer than I've known you, but I, I feel like now I got another good, good buddy. Yeah. And an ally. Our guest for this episode of Culture and Belonging has been Joe McCall, senior lecturer at Troy University. We hope that you'll subscribe to the Culture and Belonging podcast wherever you get your podcast. And get involved by tweeting us at belongingpod. Last episode, we asked you to tell us about a time someone went out of their way to make you feel welcome in a new environment. And our top reply says, I started a new job six months ago. In my first few days, all of my coworkers took the time to introduce themselves and get to know me. They invited me to lunch with them. They even made me a cake. I'm a bit shy, so these small gestures helped me feel like I belonged. That is wonderful. And you too can tweet us at BelongingPod. For our next episode, we'd like you to tell us something about your faith that you wish more people understood. We'll read the most outstanding answer at the end of episode three. Culture and Belonging is produced by Troy University in the studios of Troy Public Radio by Austin Toy with the help of Kyle Gassett. So until next time, I'm Rich Lede. And I'm Wendy Broyles. And this is Culture and Belonging. Culture and Belonging.